Oh, it's my job to kind of introduce, in a sense, what's um, happening in the week. And I want to kind of open up this week with making some what I call general Buddhist remarks about the path of compassion and the path of metta within the overall schema of Buddhism and how it affects us. In many senses, and I'm sure you might have been aware of this, particularly being practicing for a while, metta, kindness and compassion, although having a degree of prominence, are kind of second-class citizens, um, as I was saying last night, with this obsession towards wisdom uh, within the traditions. And this is something that's happened as a change over the centuries. There are so much second-class citizens, and in fact, in the Theravada schema of things, in Theravada Buddhism, um, both the compassion practices and the Brahma Viharas and, you know, Upeka and Medita and Metta, Karuna, all of these practices, the Brahma Viharas, are actually conceived of as being concentration practices, not practices which are aimed at insight. So much so that, for example, there are jhanic states, states of meditative absorption, which are associated with Metta, and states of meditative absorption, jhana states, which are associated with Karuna as well. Now, when one delves, and all you've got to do is take this on trust from me at this moment until you have time to perhaps delve into the text, because within the text there seems to be, within the Pali text in general, there seems to be a great deal more profundity attributed to these than simply being concentration states. Um, so much so that, for example, in the Metta Sutta, which I referred to last night, which is the kind of the main locus of the Metta practice, it's a tiny little text, which many of you will know, which is found in a very ancient collection in the Pali Canon, um, probably one of the oldest strata of the canon, as far as we can tell. Within that text, it says, not only uh, something I quoted at you last night, not only is this the best way to live in the world, otherwise, otherwise and, you know, with kindness and with friendliness, but one who does so, as the text says, will never be reborn again. Yeah. Um, the actual phrase in Pali is they will never come to lie in a womb again, which is actually the synonym for not taking rebirth yet again. So however one wants to interpret this, and over the few weeks that we're together, we'll look at this whole notion perhaps of rebirth a little bit, and perhaps you might ask questions about it. But however one takes that notion, what we have with the path of metta and karuna, I hope you'll get familiar with these phrases rather than keep saying kindness and compassion, because these don't really map on entirely, these words, into the English translations. But what you get is the picture that both of these, as I was trying to stress to you last night in that very brief remarks I made last night, are conceived of as being paths to awakening. What that means is paths to waking up. Now, I prefer this term, um, as some of you who've been with me before will know, much better than the term that we normally use, and you'll still find kind of repeated numerous times in books, which is enlightenment. You know, the term that's being used is literally a translation of the Pali, means to wake up. The term Buddha means one who has woken up. An arahant is the equivalent of somebody who's also woken up. And this is very important, and I'm emphasising this as a kind of Buddhist basic here, before we even start to look in depth at the approaches to metta and karuna over the next three weeks, because... This is what we're aiming at. We're aiming at waking ourselves up. We're waking ourselves up from that sleepwalking state uh, to which we are normally consigned in daily life. Walking through life and actually not doing it terribly effectively because we keep bumping into things. Um, and as our repetitive bumping into things, we get bruises and hurts. I forgive my metaphors here. Um, but we do so again and again and again because we simply don't open our eyes and see what's in front of us and live in accordance with it. 
Now the word dharma, which you all, I'm sure, have heard myriads of times, the word dharma is also about waking up, because it's the word dharma means the way things actually are. That's what we're waking up to. We're waking up to the truth of the way things actually are. In other words, how can we ease our passage through the world without keep repetitively bumping into those things which cause us pain um, and actually learn to move and live with them in an entirely different way? So there's two aspects to this notion of the way that we should live. There is the appreciation of the way things are and then there has to be the movement to living in accordance with the way things are. So it's simply not good enough to see. It's simply not good enough to kind of open your eyes and see. You've now got to see the object, if you like, using the metaphor I've been using, and then move around it, instead of bumping straight into it again. So this is what we're doing. We're waking up to this truth. We're waking up to the ways that we cause ourselves pain. And, of course, if we're waking up to the ways that we cause ourselves pain, we're waking up to the ways that we cause others pain as well in this world, and how others cause themselves pain by not living clearly in accordance with the way things are. So this awakening process is this waking up, really literally beginning to see and then live in an entirely different way. Now, as you can see, both the way of kindness and the way of compassion are waking up and they're waking up and living in an entirely different way in this world. Um, I mean, it ought to come with a government health warning. It's going to you know, absolutely change your life, <laughs> um, hopefully for the better, uh, because that's what it's about. It's not remaining stuck in the same grooves. There's a lovely image which I've been fond, and some of you might have heard me say this before. There's a lovely image that's used in one of the Chinese sutras, which is that the Buddha walked through the world with bliss-bestowing hands. You know, that seems very different from the way that we often walk through the world. <laughs> I often think of a kind of wake of destruction <laughs> that's behind us. You know, don't look over your shoulder too much. Because <laughs> there's often that wake of destruction that follows us. And I'm kind of overemphasizing it to make a point, but I'm sure we all understand what I mean by that. And so actually learning to live with this kindness and learning to live with this love and compassion... Um, is a way of radically altering our way of being in the world, our kind of stuckness as we are in the world. Now, the words metta and karuna have very distinct meanings in Pali and Sanskrit. The word metta or maitri in the Sanskrit form has this connotation of absolute friendliness, boundless friendliness towards all things. The word karuna is even more interesting because it means to turn outwards, actually, and to see others. <laughs> in other words, to move from our kind of self-obsessed states of looking in at ourselves, obsessing in our own neurotic fashions about things, and go, oops, there's other people out there. <laughs> um, and that's the movement that compassion takes its kind of initial stance from, this movement of looking outwards and seeing, actually, the pain of others. You know, not just one's own pain, which we can obsess about extremely neurotically. You know, so it's actually, you know, there are other people out there, by the way. <laughs> and it's actually that movement that we're doing. So it's bringing us into a different relationship with the world. And so in this waking up process, we're coming into a completely different relationship with the world, a completely different relationship about how we understand ourselves, how we hold others. You know, as I often joke about this, others are not just out there to irritate you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's actually how we come into that real relationship. And above all, this is a practical thing. This is not intellectual. And I think the unfortunate thing in the Buddhist tradition, and we see this through the history of the Buddhist tradition, I'm not going to bang on about this too long, but it's just important to note it, is from the time of the Buddha to, say, the medieval period in India, we see this process of increasing intellectualization. And actually what monks do is they disappear into monasteries and they start thinking a lot and debating a lot and not practicing very much. 
um, they move away from vernacular languages. Now, Pali was something close to a vernacular language. It was a language that ordinary people spoke. And they start writing in Sanskrit. And without going on about this too much, there's this increasing process of intellectualization, And the focus becomes more and more on wisdom. And I'm using that because that's the terms we so often see it as translated at. I mean, panya, prajna, actually really means penetrating insight or understanding of the way things actually are. That's what it really means. You know, wisdom sounds kind of like a body of knowledge almost, and it's not about that. Above all, and I really point this out because of what you're going to hear from the three of us over the next three weeks, sometimes because of the, various, the very format, the way it has to be presented sometimes, sounds as if it's a kind of theory or a doctrine or an intellectualization. Please do not hear that at all, even if the format, as I say, of me or whoever it is sitting in this position sits up here and tells you something. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be how you apply it to your life. Kindness is not a nice idea. <laughs> yeah. um, compassion is not a nice idea, and as with the other Brahma Viharas as well. You know, equanimity and uh, gentle joy, boundless joy, are not nice ideas. They either mean something in actuality, that means in the actual practice, in the day-to-day -day way that we live our lives, or they're just theoretical abstractions. Now, I'm putting it to you very firmly, because, as I say, the very format of the way often Dharma talks are presented makes it sound like a theory, and it's not. Actually, in early Buddhism, um, as really the kind of main foundation of it was there was never any separation between what the Buddha spoke of, supposedly as a doctrine, and the practice. So when we talk to you about the doctrine, and I'm putting this as a way it's often outlined in books, the doctrine of not-self, the doctrine of dependent origination. These are not doctrines. You know, they're either the way things are or they're not. You know, and you can only discover that in your experience. You know, kindness actually matters in your own experience and to others, or it doesn't. It's not a theory. You know? And I would say this for all of these things that you hear. Unfortunately, as I say, the, the, the style of presentation often is such that you can't help but put it away, in a, put it over sometimes in an abstract fashion. But please start to examine it in terms of your experience. This is something that is so important to this tradition. If it doesn't occur, it's merely religion. Yeah, and I say that in the worst, most pejorative of senses. <laughs> it's merely religion. It's not you know, meant to be that at all. So these are things to be inquired into in your experience, in your meditational practices. There is nothing within the early texts of Buddhism, including all the material about metta and karuna, which isn't there as practicality. Yeah. The Buddha was interested in changing people's lives. I joked about it a second ago, but waking them up to the way things are. You know, helping and giving them the tools to be able to do that in their own lives. You know. So this is what we're engaged in. We're engaged in trying to wake ourselves up. I mean, I know I haven't moved much farther from that initial statement I you know, started off with, but that is what it is about. Unless we see it in that terms and see it in terms of our own possibilities, that, that we can't do it, yeah, might not be the big one yet, Nibbana, um, but we can do it in terms of a, a broadening out of our perspective, an increasing of our vision, a way of being able to see things, a way of being able to interact with the world. Now, I said a few things last night I want to pick up on, uh, because I kind of just gave them out as very tiny little sketches. Brahma Viharas. Um, these two practices that we're practicing over this three weeks take their place within the schema which is known as the Brahma Viharas. In fact, um, the Buddha didn't teach doctrines, as I say, he taught practical things. But unfortunately, by the 5th century, um, somebody had to try and put it all into a schema as to how things were. And in the Theravadan tradition, um, this tradition to which is an adherence of vaguely in Gaia House, but not totally, but this Theravadan tradition, there's this figure called Buddha Gosa, and he puts it, and he thinks, well, hmm, 
where does the Brahmaviharas fit into the schema of what the Buddha taught? And he couldn't actually see any particular immediate area it fitted in. So he says, hmm, I'll put that into concentration practices. Mm. <laughs> and make it con- I'm kind of joking about this slightly, but it's almost as ad hoc as that. He puts it into concentration practices. And this vast book that Buddha Gosa wrote has become almost the doctrinal manual of Theravada Buddhism, and it's known as the Path to Purity, the Visuddhimagga. Yeah, the Path to Purity is the kind of manual of Theravada Buddhism. Now, I'm only saying this simply because that is not the approach that's being taken over the next three weeks, as you will probably gather from some of the remarks I've made so far today and what I made last night. That is not the approach that's being taken here. They are not concentration practices. They are practices which lead to a complete and utter transformation in your life. They really do. Um, None of the practices, as even I was suggesting this morning in in the brief instructions I gave you to doing a concentration practice, such as the samatha practice of following the breath. There is no such thing as a pure samatha practice. There is no such thing as a pure vipassana practice. Um, And equally, in many senses, there's no such thing as a simply pure metta-type practice. They all overlap, and that's how it should be. In the very, very heart of the samatha practices I was suggesting to you, there should be metta. There should be kindness. Even if one is simply attempting to concentrate and calm the mind through retaining focus, there should be a kindness in that approach. There should not be a brutalization process going on, whereby we are kind of yanking the mind back in this rather brutal fashion to fixating on the object. It just becomes obsessional. You know, it's just another form of obsession. What we're doing is, with awareness, we're bringing our mind back to something with kindness, with gentleness. The mind, in, and I'm kind of again using analogies, the mind shouldn't be grabbing hold and attempting to, you know, to wrestle with the object and hold it down and pin oneself on it. That's not what's going on. The mind should be, and the awareness should be, gently resting on it. So there's no force. doesn't mean there's no effort. That's not the same thing. But there is no force. There is no violence taking place in this. There is a friendliness to what is occurring. And I know this is the practice you've been doing throughout the day, but I'm just trying to emphasise here that even within that, there has to be metta for it to work properly. And of course there is a degree of insight... Because you should note, when you're distracted, what is going on. This does not mean the same as rejecting or getting caught up with. It means simply noting what is there. And again, in a sense, welcoming in what is there with friendliness. So there's metta, even in that. Welcoming it in. Thoughts are not your enemies. Um, And unfortunately, that's the way they're often treated as enemies. Um, there's nobody come along with the magical vacuum cleaner to hoover them all out. Thoughts are not like that. Um, So how do you come to live with the kind of thought processes and the distraction processes that we have, the desires and the aversions, and of course a lot of the delusions that we have? How do we come to live with them? Well, initially you have to accept them, because that's what's there. This is where we start from. So... In a sense, I'm coming back to the very first of the practices. That you know, Even if we call it Vipassana and we go into... And actually, a lot of contemporary Vipassana is very different from traditional Vipassana. I say contemporary, that which arises out of the 19th century with modern practitioners like Mahasi Sayadaw and people like this in the early 20th century. Whether we call it Samatha or we call it Vipassana, at the very, very, if you like, the very foundation of what should be going on should be something like this friendliness, this kindness. As I said last night, I think this is absolutely radically important for us, uh, particularly because we find ourselves in the Western world. We find ourselves in a world which, in some senses, um, downplays any kind of kindness towards ourselves because that's um, self-indulgence. 
It can be even its worst form in some psychoanalytic tradition seen as being narcissism, self-love. Well, there's nothing wrong with this. <laughs> we have to start somewhere, and the place to start is at home. Okay? If you haven't got it in your home base, you, and you haven't got feelings of kindliness and friendliness towards yourself, how on earth, and I really pose this as a question, how on earth are we going to get it into the outside world and other, other than in a very, very um, a form which isn't real? into the world to actually have those feelings of kindness or compassion towards yourself and then to be firmly established within yourself means that there is a base from which they can be extended into the world so it really does start at home Um, too much, all too much of what we do um, starts at home you know, so, for example, I think I've, I've seen this many times, and some of you might you know, um, pick up on this, you know, having observed it yourself, which is often that people are saying something like this. I mean, you hear, I've heard people say things, and I'm only being as hard on you as I would to be to myself, which means because I beat myself up constantly, I'm going to beat you up too. <laughs> you know, and, and there's that going on often in that process. In other words, because there is a, and I, and I don't hesitate to use this word, because there is a brutalization occurring you know, in relation to yourself, the process of that self, then it's all too easy to extend it to the other. You know, in thought, deed, and word. And, and often mainly through the verbal aspects. Although... As we know, all too often it can spill over into things like domestic violence and things like that. So, in establishing ourselves, and you will hear this many times from all three of us, I'm sure, in establishing ourselves, in developing kindly feelings towards the what is going on here, we are learning to accept. We are learning to accept in some ways the foibles um, the problems, um, the fragmentation that we are at this stage. Now, because we're not awakened, that is the way we are. Yeah. And the stance that we can normally take on it is one of rejection, pushing it away. Yeah, that's often the side that we don't want to know about ourselves. We'll fixate on the, the better dimensions of our psyche, perhaps, and think that we can develop those. But, of course, there's that lurking stuff in the background um, waiting to get you almost at unsuspecting moments, and it does from time to time. It, yeah, and, and you often come across you know, um, people saying, I don't know where that came from, or, or why did I do that? And that's because of this, if you like, element of our psyche which we have not wanted to see, not wanted to know about. And in fact, that's the very meaning, for those of you who know anything about dependent origination, of the actual term avidya um, in Pali, which is, it's not simply ignorance, it's not wanting to know. You know all too often we see it as simply denial of knowledge or you know, all the things that our normal understanding of ignorance implies. Well, if only I had the right information, things would be okay. Well, that's not the case. We've got all the information. It's us. It's all there. But a lot of it we just don't want to know about. A lot of the things in the world, the actual way things really are, we don't want to know about. So we push them away and we deny them. And, well, like any repressed, it comes back. (laughs) Because repressions come back. That is what's happening for us a lot of the time. Forgive me if I'm speaking in generalisations, but I hope some of this makes sense. So in that denial there is a not wanting to know, a not wanting to see, until, of course, that things obtrude on us, they actually break through, they rupture sometimes our stability that we've managed to find for ourselves because we haven't seen them. We haven't learned to love what is there. We haven't learned to accept it, if you want to use another word. But in a way it's about learning to love it. You know, learn to love who you are with all your problems. <laughs> you know, I use the phrase, you know, learning to befriend your demons. 
this is what we're doing. We're learning to open ourselves up to the elements of ourselves which we usually deny. And in doing that, we kind of sever, it's like severing a limb off. We sever part of ourselves off. Every time we do that, we cut off something of ourselves. Now, in accepting that you are this way or that way, you know, the good and the bad, as we usually label it, about ourselves, we never really get any sense of wholeness. Now, that good and that bad, and particularly that bad, does not have to remain the same. And if you like, that's one of the elements, of course, I presume that you're all here for, because it doesn't have to remain the same. We know that it can change. We know that change is going to occur, no matter whether we want it or not. You know, we will change. You know, others often point it out to us in our close relationships. Uh, you've changed. <laughs> you know, that, that there is change there. It's going on. So we know change is going to occur. So even if you're accepting and learning, as I say, to befriend, to learn to love, that's a strong word, perhaps. Uh, I don't personally think it's too strong. But to love who we are doesn't mean that you're not going to change. It just means that you accept yourself wholly as you are as a starting point. And where can you start from? You can't start from somewhere you're not. You can only start from where you are. And where you are is this mixture. From the Buddhist perspective, the mind, our minds are, if you like, and again, forgive the analogy, it's a kind of soup, really, some of pleasant ingredients and some of unpleasant ingredients. Um, you know, and it's like kind of accepting what's in the soup initially. Yeah. Because it's not going to remain the same. Um, despite that image, what we're really saying is the mind is composed of unwholesome elements and wholesome elements. And once we begin to accept and understand what is there, and we can only do that with love and acceptance... It is only from that position that change in the direction that you want it to go can really occur. Because you've got to see the unwholesome elements. You can't deny those unwholesome elements. And there's nothing to feel guilty about. (laughs) But those unwholesome elements are there. All of our minds are like this. They are different permutations and different combinations of the, the... the wholesome and the unwholesome, but they're all there. So it's learning to accentuate, to bring forward the wholesome elements of the mind and gradually, gradually beginning to let go as you supplant them with the development of these wholesome dimensions. <coughs> so that's what we're learning that's what we're learning to do. In a sense we're learning to you know, let the unwholesome ingredients bubble to the top of your soup and skim them off. <laughs> yeah, learning to let them go. Um, and we can only do that from this radical place of acceptance. So a lot of the learning process is about this learning to be who we are at this moment in time, for that change to occur. One aspect perhaps I want to introduce at this stage, and I used it a slight bit this morning in introducing the instructions, is that this change comes about through correct cultivation. Now there's this one word, which is the word that's always mistranslated. It's the word that's mistranslated as meditation. And it's the word bhavana. Um, It is derived from a Sanskrit Pali root. And the Sanskrit Pali root for this is which actually means to grow. It's a very agricultural metaphor. It's about growing things. It's about weeding your garden and tending it and cultivating in the right way. Um, And this is what we're engaging in, in these processes. So they're not so much meditations on loving kindness and meditations on compassion and and boundless joy and equanimity, if you take the full Brahma Viharas, what they are are ways of learning to cultivate those. Preparing the ground, sowing the seeds, watering the soil, waiting for the first little glimmerings of life to come through, and then nurturing what is there. 
I don't know about you, but when I first came across that in my very, very early days in Buddhism, that, that's actually what it means, not meditation. Meditation often seems to me to be quite kind of looking at something, you know, thinking about it. In fact, we often use that as prevarication, in, you know, certainly in England. You know, I'll go away and meditate on it, which generally means I won't do anything about it. <laughs> and what um, this is actually doing is it's actually much more dynamic. It's much less passive. It's much more active. Is actually we are engaged in, as I say, all those things of cultivating the soil, planting the seeds, watering, nurturing, watching the first signs of life, helping the thing to come into full fruition. So that what we're doing is growing kindness within our psyche. We are growing compassion. We're growing boundless joy and equanimity within them. We're not just meditating. They're not, as I say, and I joked about it, but they're not just nice ideas. If they remain as nice ideas, that's all they are. They're abstractions. They have no reality and actually direct purport in our ordinary daily lives. And if there's one thing that I'm sure you're all aware of, and I'm just reminding you, hopefully, is if any of this stuff means anything at all, it's got to be out there in ordinary life. This that you're engaged in for this three weeks is, in a sense, training. It's, it's your cultivation. It's your helping to grow something, to experience it, to, to see those dimensions of what's occurring in the process of our psychological, you know, um, our psychological processes and seeing what is there, hopefully beginning to orient it in this way of growing that kindness, that metta, Growing that karuna, that compassion in your experience. But if it remains here, it doesn't mean anything, does it? If it remains in this sort of environment, and that you can only do it in this environment, then it really means very little. It might help you in some ways, I don't want to completely disparage that. But the real test of this all is perhaps we all know, even if we don't admit it to ourselves, is when I am confronted in ordinary life with that person I find irritating, can I show them any kindness? That's the real test of it. That's the test of whether anything really has been seeded and grown in our psyches. So this process is one of, of the training and the moving out into life, and hopefully the acceptance of oneself, and through that acceptance of oneself and the ways that, for example, that we can foul up in ordinary life, as we do. You know, I joked again about it in the trail of devastation that we often leave behind us. You know, but others are doing that too, and if I'm doing it and others are doing it, what well, isn't that the ground for compassion, rather than you know, criticising you or you or you, you know, whoever it might be, because they're doing it, because I'm doing it too. You know? This leads um, one of the great writers in Mahayana Buddhism, let's move away from um, Theravada for a second, one of the great writers, Shantideva, in Mahayana Buddhism, to say it makes no, it makes no sense to talk about my pain, it only makes any sense to talk about our pain. It's kind of as if we're all in the same boat. We're all suffering together in many ways. We're all programmed in slightly similar ways to create that devastation, to create that pain that surrounds us. And this is what it's about. This is why, obviously... These two virtues that we are concentrating on, developing hopefully this week, these few weeks, are so important because they're about the easing of the pain of the world. Not just the pain of ourselves, but the pain of the world. They are, if you like, to put in a slightly different ways, they're ways of developing good karmic action in the world. Because it's action with intention. You heard Rob last night talking about intentionality. Intention 
is the major dimension of what we're engaged in. Developing good intentions, wholesome intentions. So actually, the orientation towards metta, towards karuna, again, for those not familiar with these words, I'll keep saying them and I'll drop them. Metta, obviously, kindness, friendliness, boundless friendliness. Karuna, compassion, it's about as good as it gets as a translation. But what we geared towards is developing intentions which plant those as activities in our lives. And as activities in our lives, with the right intention, with the intention to be friendly, to be kind, to be compassionate, to hold others equally, to appreciate their joys, what we are doing is coming in, as I said right at the beginning, into a different relationship with the world. I would even go so far as to say that actually what we're developing are different eyes. If I'm going to use an ocular metaphor, the metaphor of the eye. We're developing different eyes in that we learn to see the world in an entirely different way and to see others in an entirely different way. Now, as you can see, the the eye of violence and brutalisation and fragmentation that is so often present in our experience is completely different from the eye that sees the world with kindness and love. It's completely different. You've only got to see that and you know, perhaps you know, with a loved one, the way you hold them in your gaze and the way that you hold somebody you find slightly irritating or somebody you don't like in your gaze. It's very obvious that... you know, same eyes, two different ways of seeing. So these aspects that we're developing over this three weeks are ways of seeing the world. They're ways of coming into dynamic relationships with the world, which is completely and utterly other from our normal conditioned ways of being with the world. Now, most of that conditioned way of being with the world and again, a suggestion for you to look at in your experience, is, is exactly that. It's conditioned. It's habitual. It occurs again and again and again. Slightly different permutations, never identical, but it occurs again and again and again. And so as a consequence of that, we get the same disappointments, the same pain, the same sufferings, again and again and again. And that's part of the unawakened process. Um, this big word that we use, and I'll go into this a lot more fully later on um, in the retreat, but this big process that we call sangsara, I'm sure this must be a word that's familiar to you all, Uh, this word sangsara literally means to go round in circles. (laughs) That's what its literal meaning is in Pali and Sanskrit. So this sangsaric process is a process of feeling as I was going round in circles. Have you ever felt that? (laughs) Here I am again, (laughs) doing something very similar to us. (laughs) And what we bring to that similarity, now some of the things we can't help, there's repetition. That's what life is often about. It's about a lot of doing things the same. Um, But of course we bring exactly the same mindset or something very similar to that again and again and again and again. And therefore if it's something I don't like doing, I suffer in similar ways again and again and again, because I bring the same mind, the same conditioned phenomena, to whatever I'm engaged in. So it's learning, if you like, and and this is why I'm calling this, and the three of us have called this a path to awakening, that metta and karuna help to break the circle. Even when we start off with ourselves, with the dimensions and aspects of our psyche, which we don't normally like and actually normally try to get away from as quickly as possible or even repress, when we learn to, to let some of that stuff in, and I don't say let it all in at this moment, but when we start to let some of that in, to seep in, and we can learn to see it with just a little bit more kindness just a little bit more friendliness to what is there, 
then it changes even our relationship to ourselves. Now, one has to remember that what we've done and the way that we are in this world is not, in a way, subject to guilt. It's actually not a word that you actually find in any Asian language, other than when they try to make up a word to translate it when Christian missionaries arrived. (laughs) That's actually what happened. There weren't... There wasn't words for guilt in certainly any of the Indian languages. Um, They had to make them up. Um, Now, what I'm saying about this is it's not subject for guilt because what we've done and the way that we are psychologically is being up to this point, and it doesn't mean it has to remain the same, it's being up to this point, the way that we've tried to cope with life, to get through it, um, to be the best as we can with it. If there is any element that is culpable, is open to criticism, is that often, and even I hesitate in saying this, that often we just haven't had the best tools available to help us to do our best in life. So much of it has been on the hoof, literally. We've been trying to cope with the things that have arisen in our lives. Um, And we've tried to cope as best we can, but of course, sometimes the best we can just hasn't been good enough. And it's created the problems we had. But unfortunately, because we're habitual a lot of the time, then a lot of this stuff becomes sedimented. And you think that, and I don't even say this, that you think cognitively about it, but what is there that might have worked in one situation you think might work in another situation? And things have changed. You've changed and the world has changed and the other person has changed or whatever the permutation of consequence of, of situation is. So let's get away from the idea that, you know, for example, any of us are bad people. <laughs> you know, because that's often what part of the refusal to accept dimensions in ourselves. Because somehow there's a kind of badness lurking in there I don't want to know about, really. And so, therefore, I'll try and cover it over with this facade of goodness. <laughs> but this this approach that I'm talking about, which is really the beginning approach of the meta, and I haven't really moved much away from that during this talk, is about learning to accept that. To accept that you're not a bad person, that none of us are, and what we've done through our lives is we've all tried to do our best. That's really important to think about, to actually try and take on board. Because in doing that, you open yourself up to treating mistakes, things that you've done, in a much, much more kindly fashion. And it's about part of that, starting to generate this, what I call, compassion, friendliness at home, before we actually start to make that move into the external world. Now, of course, because we're not isolated, then it will move out into the if I start to accept myself and be a little bit friendlier to myself, then, for the most part, it will move out into the world. Others will notice it. You will behave in perhaps slightly more accepting fashions to things which perhaps would normally irritate you. These are just kind of examples. Because there's been a degree of change and acceptance towards yourself. So making this journey through this, what I've said, and I'll reiterate this word again, which is using metta and using karuna, kindness and compassion, we're learning to break the circle. We're actually learning, and this is another claim I'll pick up later on in one of my other talks, is that we're actually learning when we see the conditioned ways that we act, and how that conditioning comes about, we can learn to open up, in a way, the process, learning to love the process and let it go. Because we have to do that. That's the, that's the place of radical exception. Now, again, as a suggestion, real love, and I know there's many definitions of what love is in here, but real love is a love that can let go. So in learning to love who and what we are even at this stage, 
We're learning to love in order to let go. As, as long as there is any element of repression at all, there is a clinging. Because actually repression is in a way a clinging to, an attachment to. It's, an, it's the opposite of what I'm suggesting. Yeah. So the moment there is that repression, there really is buried deeply in the psyche that attachment that's spoken about, again in something I'll talk about later, dependent origination. The only way of radically learning to let go is learning to love who and what you are. Learning to love who and what others are as well. Okay, I think I'll finish now. I've kind of thrown out a lot. Um, hopefully some of it's hit the mark and perhaps some of it hasn't. Um, but I'm just wondering if there are any questions that people... There will be specific question and answer sessions as we go through the retreat. But I will always make space at the end of anything I've talked about for questions if there's questions around at this stage. Mm-hmm. You said when the, in the medieval India, when they put more and more emphasis on prashna, mm-hmm. was that at the same time when they started making these really, really long uh, elaborations around the prashna parameter sutra, and they were longer and longer and longer? All right. Yeah, it was. I mean, the prashna parameter sutra is the earliest of them is probably about the first century of before the common era before, you know, BC is what we used to call it. That's probably the earliest of them. <clears throat> Again, they were more practical texts, but what you get, and this kind of is slightly intellectual, but what you get is a process of the movement away from the practicality of the teaching. It becomes much more intellectual. The Prajnaparamita, uh, Paramita Sutras, for example, are written in Sanskrit. They're written. They're not composed. Um, none of the material that you find in the Pali Canon, the equivalent, which is preserved in a Chinese translation, which is a Chinese arguments, were originally written materials. They were all oral, transmitted materials. They were preserved in dialects. I mean, Pali is actually just a way of recording a dialect. That's all. Something would have been spoken. Um, And so what you got was this gradual movement away from the really practical dimensions of the teaching into an over-intellectualization. It's a bit like what happens in Christianity with scholasticism in medieval Christianity as well. Very similar. Big foundations, big monasteries, lots of people debating, hardly any of them practicing. That's basically what happened. And so throughout the history of Buddhism you find renegade movements. In fact, this is why you find things like the Mahamudra tradition arising in India, which is much more of a practical teaching that focuses on the meditative experience. I'm using that word even though I don't like it. Um, you find it happening in Chan Buddhism, in China. You know, so it's moving much more towards experience. So you find these kind of renegade movements moving and rebelling against that. Yeah. And what I was really trying to emphasise when saying that, just to kind of really push the point, is that actually none of the teachings... And you look in the Pali Nikayas, just as an example, because that's the best preserved record we have apart from the Chinese. When you look in the Pali Nikayas, everything the Buddha says has practical value. There is nothing that's purely theoretical. He says, I do not give a teaching um, that has merely that intellectual component to it. That's what the Brahmins were doing in ancient India. They were interested in intellectual debates. and And they didn't live a life which was noble, according to the Buddha. You know, despite the fact they called themselves nobles, you know, Arya. You know. So the way that one became noble, Aryan, in the true sense of the word Aryan, that the Buddha uses, was to practice, to take those teachings, to examine them, see them in terms of one's life, you know, to see the transformation that could occur by orienting the mind in a different way. And that's, you know, even in the history of Buddhism, it's, you know, I'm 
personally quite fascinating me because of what I do. But you know, in terms of the actual practical stuff, it's, a lot of it's not necessary to know about. It really isn't. It's, you know, it's, it's that deeply rooted teaching and the practicality of the teaching that you find in the Nikaya elements is so important. Even something that appears to be, and I don't know how familiar many of you are with the, the canon, but even some of that material that appears to be intellectual is a big part of the Tapitaka in the, you know, the three baskets, which is known as Abhidhamma. Um, and it looks intellectual. It isn't. What it is is a, a practical manual for what you're going to experience in Vipassana meditation. That's what it is. It's how you're, what's occurring in the mind. If you, it's like it's a map, a grammar, I don't know which word, you know, of how the mind works you know, that's laid out. And it was laid out for entirely practical purposes. So that's what I want to emphasize really, certainly I think from any of us that are going to be speaking over this next three weeks, that what we're emphasizing are the practical dimensions, as, as you would expect here. Not a long answer to a very short question. Anyway. <laughs> I tend to do this. So. <laughs> John, would you, when you're talking about um, loving one's demons or one's difficult, repressed side, would you, would you say it was true that when you can love, say, that aspect or one of those aspects of yourself, that aspect relaxes so much in that love hmm. that it creates space and it can change. Yeah, it's, it's about... It's, it's as I was suggesting, really, in, in learning to befriend love, whichever works for you, I don't really mind. It's re- the word metamitri really means both. It means to love and to, be, to have this boundless friendliness. But in learning to let it into that friendliness, to surround whatever is arising with friendliness, you create the conditions for it becoming unstuck. And that's what you're doing. So you allow it its possibility to do what it would naturally do if we didn't have this kind of repressive mechanism, which is to arise and pass away. Because that's what the mind does. Repression inhibits that process. Repression actually isn't the word that's even used in, in the original scriptures, but... But it's essentially it's that repressive process, that process of attachment, actually, that we're attached to it and we're not letting it go. We're not letting it do what it's going to do. So in letting it into that space of friendliness, we allow it to do its natural thing, arise and pass away. Someone is. You were speaking about the, the masses, and the, you know, in a, in a good way, um, having a, a lot of self-love and is demanding. Seems like it seems like sometimes, um, sometimes, if if um, we're going to have the matter for ourselves, we need to act in what seems like a really unfriendly manner. Otherwise, it would just be kind of completely taken over. Mm. with um, someone's demands, for example. And I wonder how to do that in a way that's... Mm. I mean, if, if there... Are, I mean, it seems the opposite of, of the kind of Jesus, but where you just carry on giving the other cheek, you know, but... Mm. Well, I think, yeah, this is something we will touch on quite a lot, because, I mean, actually, <laughs> Tibetans have a very derogatory term for this. They call it idiot compassion. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I think that's really what you're talking about, is that kind of giving when there's nothing really left to give, actually. Um, and it's knowing and having, again, the insight, if you want to use the word wisdom, I don't mind, but having the insight to know when there is something there to give, and that has to come from that nurturing process of the self, not the loving of a self, but the nurturing of that process which is ourselves. Uh, and that's a distinct... And in the next talk I give, which will be later on in the week, what I'll be talking about is that process. Uh, because it's really quite... Um, 
we have to know, in a sense, what we're learning to accept and where we're operating so it doesn't become the narcissism. You know, the narcissism is a destructive process. It's ego enhancement. And dealing with the narcissism. And dealing with the narcissism. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, narcissism is beautifully described because it's the myth of the West, isn't it? I mean, narcissism, you know, the myth of Narcissus is the person who, who sees his image in the pool of water and is so enamoured by it and falls and drowns. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound like a good process for a lot of people in the West? <laughs> okay, drowning in themselves. <laughs> now, now, that's the very opposite of what we're talking about, the meta towards oneself. Yeah. This is the image, if you like, actually, of a big part of Western culture of, of the mirror, of being infatuated by what you see in the mirror, yeah, even if it's yeah, being slightly repulsed. In a way, there's still an infatuation with it by what you see. So it's a kind of neurotic tendency, which is based on egotism, which we're trying, in a sense, to open ourselves up from, move away from that. So it's understanding, really, if we're talking about this loving of, well, I don't even want to use the word the self because it makes it sound like a substantive thing, but the loving of self in the correct way. We have to understand what that selving is, what that selving process is, in order, for example, to create the conditions where there is enough to give and to know when there is nothing to give. So I think part, I mean, part of my answer to your question is, is wait a bit longer and we'll be examining it anyway. Um, but that's kind of an initial response to it. like we might have reached a natural conclusion. <laughs> Just any one more opportunity for anybody who wants to ask anything. Don't worry at this stage, I'm not bothered whether you ask questions or not. We will have proper sessions. Um, but this is such an early stage, but I just wanted to open it up and see if there is anything people wanted to raise in relation to what I talked about. I want to ask you about your definition of insight. Mm-hmm. Because you said, uh, okay, there are elements of all of them overlapping, right? The metta and the vipassana, the samatha. Mm. And then you said insight is mainly just noting what is there. No. I thought insight was actually really seeing something, and as you see it, it, it somehow dissolves because you see it so deeply. Yeah, but that was insight. Well, that's real. That's what I call profound insight. That is really the conclusion. I mean, the insight that we were really talking about in the Buddhist tradition, and you'll probably know this anyway, is actually ultimately the insight into anicca, yeah. dukkha, mm. and anatta. Mm. Yeah, in other words, into those three things. That's what the content of insight really, really is. But in order to get that, there has to be that noting process. Sure. Yeah. So, in other words, first of all, for example, um, you will be seeing what is arising and what is passing away. And when I use, when I said there's this overlapping, I didn't mean to think that you're going to immediately have the insight into those three things. You might. But what I'm saying is initially you're watching the process of the mind. Whatever is happening, you can watch it arise and you can watch it pass away. And in a sense, there's a slight insight there into impermanence, even in that process. Now, it might not be cognitive at this stage, because mm. I'm not even beginning to want you to become aware of it, in a cognitive way of it, but just to know what is going on. In a sense, that's the foundation of insight. Yeah. You sure, otherwise you can't see anything. Otherwise you can't see anything. That's right. <laughs> so, really what I, was, I suppose what I was really trying to get at, and this is, again, just to emphasise it, what I was trying to get at is... Please don't think, because I hear so many people, you know, have styles of meditation. I do Vipassana, or I do Metta, or I do this, or I do that. Mm. And they all sound so exclusive, mm. as if they don't overlap, and they do. You know, there's no such thing, as I said uh, earlier on, I don't think there's any such thing as pure samatha. You know, all, all those elements have got to be present to a degree, which is actually why 
ultimately, I would, you know, one of the claims I would make, and perhaps you'll pick me up on it later in the in the retreat, is one of the claims I make actually that not only is it a path to awakening, if it's a path to awakening, metta and karuna, it's also got to be a path to insight, yeah. because otherwise there couldn't be awakening. So actually, it's a vehicle for that as well. But that's a bigger story. (laughs) Okay, well, let's uh, draw this to a conclusion. And uh, thank you, and I shall... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.